Welcome to the Mike on Much Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Gurman. We're here with our friend and trusted producer, Max Kerman. We also have our pop culture aficionado, Shane Cunningham. Today's episode, we're uh, going to start with a devastating story uh, out of Kamloops, British Columbia, where the remains of 215 children were found at a former residential school. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, maybe you're, you're not a Canadian listener, or maybe you're just not very familiar with this part of our history, but I'm just going to read you this paragraph on what a residential school is in Canada um, off of Wiki. It says, in Canada, the Indian residential school system was a network of boarding schools for Indigenous peoples. The network was funded by the Canadian government's Department of Indian Affairs and administered by Christian churches. The school system was created to remove Indigenous children from the influence of their own culture and assimilate them into the dominant European-Canadian culture, quote, to kill the Indian and the child. Over the course of the system's more than 100-year experience, around 150,000 were placed in residential schools nationally. By the 1930s, about 30% of Indigenous children were believed to be attending residential schools. The number of school-related deaths remains unknown due to an incomplete historical record, though estimates range from 3,200 to upwards of 6,000, including the 215 children um, that were found in Kamloops, BC at a former residential school. Uh, I can't imagine how how devastating and sad uh, this story is for Indigenous people. Um, it is a stark reminder of Canada's not very clean history. Um, however, whatever pride you take in being Canadian, whatever that means, you know, however you view yourself as a jovial sort of polite people uh, who sort of look at other nations and maybe their their track record on humanity or 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 crimes against humanity. This is right there. This is as atrocious as anything uh, we've ever seen around the world. And it's a history that we don't talk very much about. But the last school closed in 1996. 1996. Um, so yeah, I just think on a day like today, where this story comes out, uh, uh, and we think about sort of what it means to be Canadian, this is a part of it. Uh, and we can't shy away from it. And yeah, I mean, this story has been um, terrible. Why did the children die, though? Alex explained what you just read to me, but couldn't exactly figure out why were the children dying. I don't get it. The people that ran these schools uh, basically did so with, with, with reckless abandon. There were no consequences. So if kids became unruly or they were malnutritioned uh, or there was sexual abuse, um, children would die just because lack of care, all sorts of reasons uh, across the board. And there was no oversight. So what do you do when a child dies? Instead of putting, you know, having it on record or, or, or any sort of like um, consequences, they would just bury them on the grounds and no one would know. And these families would never know what happened to their children because they were, they were ripped away from their families. Jesus. Max, wow. how are you yeah. doing? You're, you're having yeah, a tough no. time over there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just upsetting. It, um, yeah, it's like we, uh, <laughs> by the way, it's like, I don't want uh, yeah, it's upsetting. Obviously, I think like we we learned about residential schools at some point in our education, and it's sort of embarrassing to say that like I don't think we understood the gravity of it. I think like when at least my recollection of being told about it was okay. These these students lived on a reserve, but and they were taken away from their families, but they were brought you know to get Canadian education. Like the extent of how badly they were abused and the murders that happened like that that was never sort of explained uh t to me and, and and like and you hear the narrative of missing indigenous people has has become more uh, prevalent i'd say in the last uh you know five ten years uh, you know especially with gordon downey's passing that story has been told more widely not just in you know smaller corners of our country um and and you've heard about yeah the missing indigenous kids um 
but yeah, this is, uh, you know, and, and I think people are saying that this is just sort of probably the tip of the iceberg. You know, they've, they assume that there's thousands of these burial sites across the country. And, um, yeah, yeah I mean, this story ends up bringing it, you know, this is a, this is, it's largely viewed as, as like, like, um, an indigenous human rights story, but something that we can like this sort of larger Canada that we, we sort of like, we don't talk about, we don't think about, uh, and then something like this happens and it's like sort of, it comes to the forefront and we have to sort of like recognize these things. And there's always this, this sort of like, I don't know, this kind of attitude online when like the, the prime minister, like when Justin Trudeau will like apologize to indigenous people or he'll, he'll have ceremonies honoring them and he'll do people are always like, Oh, you know, it's, he's always doing that. There is no amount of apologizing. It's, it'll never be too much. Like, like I, I cannot get over how uh, brutal this of a human rights violation this is for our history, for us as Canadians, that we took these kids from their homes. Like, like I just, it, it is unfathomable to me, you know? And so I can't even imagine um, how painful it is uh, for indigenous people to, to have this, something that they have to, they've lived with this history that they've lived with, that they've been affected by. And then now a story like this comes out and brings everything back Um yeah, I, do, I don't know what to say uh, about it. And, you know, it's like, you know, the rates of, you know, depression and suicide and, you know, drug and alcohol abuse is quite high in that community. And you're like, no, fuck, you know. <laughs> it's like, you know, you, you see these these people, these members of our country struggling so much. And it's like, of course, it's, you know, there's a tweet that I saw. I shared the other day, it was like, if your parents are over 55, they could have been one of those kids that, you know, and then you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be alive. Right. So yeah. What do you think about, um, you know, it's like, obviously there's like tragic shit happening everywhere in the world on a, on a daily basis. Right. Like that's happening in real time that that's happening. You know, people are recognizing things that happened a hundred years ago. I think I saw something in the paper the other day that Germany is starting to pay reparations for some genocide they committed like in 1904 in Africa. Um, but you know, this one it's like, yeah, it, it feels like, um, there's there's something we could do about it here in in Canada, right? Where it's like you know when it when it comes to other countries, it's sort of other countries' business. Uh, each one of us can only take on you know probably so much pain or trauma or these terrible stories on a daily basis. Um, and, and thinking about you know as you say, Mike, like what what can be done? And I think I think part of it, you're right, is just like talking about it. I think um, the other thing is like listening. Um, to members of the indigenous community and asking, you know, what they want. And it's, you know, I think when it comes to one, one of the things I was thinking about recently or in the last day um, was just the, the renaming of, um, of certain schools and, you know, certain, and, and taking down the statues um, of like, you know, the fathers of confederation, Sir John and MacDonald. Um, you know, the people are talking about, I don't know what the dude's first name is, but whoever started Ryerson, Mr. Ryerson, um, what, you know, if those buildings should be changed. And I think I'd like, you know, it's funny. I think when you saw the Confederate statues coming down in the States last year during BLM, 
part of me goes, well, of course everybody was fucking racist back then. Like, who gives a shit? Like, not not to say who gives a shit, but like my expectation for any kind of colonial settler back then was so low to begin with. And, you know, maybe I wasn't quite as troubled as I, I should have been in, in thinking about like what those monuments mean. But, you know, all, you know, all it takes is something happening close to home for you to sort of like snap into it and realize like why these things are really painful. And obviously this is happening right now to me personally. And just thinking about it, it's like, you know, if somebody, if, if an indigenous person uh, says like, like, Sir John McDonald, like change the name of the fucking school. <laughs> let's do that. <laughs> you know, like, let's change, like Ryerson, just change the fuck, you know, like. Is that something they care about, you think? Uh, well, this is the thing. I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. and again, yeah, it's it's like if, if I guess my point is, is like, you know, there's a lot of <laughs> opinions and, and how to move forward on things. And ultimately, it's like, let's just listen. Like, And that's one small thing of many things that needs to be addressed and needs to be worked on consistently. But uh, and I don't think it's like listening to like the <laughs> the needs and wants of just like upper class white people who who fancy themselves woke because that's I that is when it's presented in that way I find that to be taking up space and to and to be making the thing about themselves so so if it's on me if if you're, if, if I'm going around parading around be like tear down the statues fuck them all that's actually disrespectful I think to the community that we should be listening to. So I guess, I guess my only point, yeah, my only point is that it's like, yeah. And and I think some members of the community would say, yeah, we've been saying that shit for a long time and nobody was really taking it seriously. And now maybe we're all taking it a little bit more seriously. But I think the the most important thing is just like, you know, just, just make space um, and, and let people lead and listen to them. And, and 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 do and do mm-hmm. what we're asked because that, that's sort of like you know the, the very least that can be done i thought there's a, um, a quote and it's kind of fucking it's really embarrassing I, I, you know that like you know you knew sir john mcdonald was like an old rich white drunk you know from <laughs> for uh, would have come from england and settled settled the country but here's a quote from today that was shared online that Arkell shared it. When the school's when the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents, who are savages. And though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training, mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. It's been strongly impressed upon myself as the head of the department that Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from their parental influence. And the only way to do that would to put them in a central training industrial schools where they will require acquire the habits and modes of thought of white men. It's like Jesus Christ, like, yeah. Anyway, it's probably embarrassing that I'm fucking crying about it today, despite the fact that shit's been happening forever. Forever, but yeah, it's just it's 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 yeah. Going forward, to me, a, a big takeaway is how whatever we we whatever pride we take, and I said a bit of this off the top in being Canadian, whatever that is, like hockey and beers and being polite and whatever like our view of Canada is all of the fun sort of goofy stuff that we take pride in it's like going forward we have to carry this human rights violation this is a part of the history this shit is who we are as well and we we gloss over that and we always say it's some other country or we we look at America's history and we're like they're so racist it's like no we did this 
these Christian institutions and these settlers came in to somebody else's land and they took their kids out of their fucking homes and they put them in these residential schools and they did this for a long fucking time, 1996. That's, that's what being Canadian is as well. And so going forward, can we give the land back? I wonder, like, you know how they always have those things before like a movie they they'll be like, Oh, I just want to recognize that this movie theater was built on sacred land. Yeah. And it's like, can you just give it back? I mean, this is the hard work. This is the details. This is going forward. What do reparations look like? What do, how, how do we allocate, you know, give, give, give indigenous people whatever they're asking for. Seriously. Like, it's like, let's have that conversation. And I know these conversations have been happening. And, and like you said, Max, like residential schools have been a part of our history, but never so stark. And I don't think we ever contextualize just how insidious and brutal these institutions were. And so whatever it is going forward, is it, is it higher taxes for the rest of us in order to like build these communities up and, and give them more back? It's like, I'm all for whatever that infrastructure looks like, because there's no amount that we can give them that can make up for the dead children and what we did to these families. Well, for a long time, it felt like people thought they were doing something mm-hmm. by just saying those words before the movie or the theater opening or the art gallery. And it's just felt so self-congratulatory. Yeah. And it, it's like not doing anything. It's just, it, it's just saying words. Yeah. The, and there's also like, yeah, as you say, Mike, there's like, what are like the institutional practices that must be implemented immediately moving forward? And then it's like, and it's still embarrassing today. Like, isn't there drinking water issues on a lot of reserves right now um, that where they don't have clean water? We could probably t- find tons pipelines yeah. going through land that that is not like like the, the idea of ownership of land and all of these things. And by the way, these are like these are complicated issues. And we've sort of built this country over the last, you know, hundred some odd years, couple hundred years, whatever it is like <laughs> on not great practices. And so now we've got this house that's built on bullshit and we still have to maintain the house and that is the hard work that's the stuff that like leaders need to figure out leaders like you know what i mean of the country leaders of the indigenous community but i think the first step is like having these conversations because these conversations weren't being had and it took the discovery of 215 children buried in a fucking grave on a residential school for us to even have this conversation and i don't think it's been in the consciousness the way that i i think it will be going forward maybe this is the beginning of a reckoning i i don't know yeah, the I mean, I guess one of the practical, yeah, because, you know, I'm a practical thinker. It's like, okay, how the fuck do we, you know, actually make a difference and help? And uh, yeah, as you say, Mike, it's like voting for, for certain politicians that make it a priority, right? Like, that's probably the first thing that you can do. Um, because, yeah, I, th- I think community groups can do a really important job in advocating for for certain rights and so it's like who are those community groups who are those indigenous groups that are applying pressure on the government because things don't happen anywhere in life if if the right type of pressure isn't being applied so and the last school closed in 1996 there are people alive who ran and funded this school there are institutions that ran this school whether it's these these christian groups or whatever it's like let's let's have some accountability let's find some of these people and let's let's take the, the appropriate steps and maybe that can also lead to some healing because if i'm if i'm a member of the indigenous community and i look at this terrible history it's like i I want consequences too for the people that perpetrated these, these atrocities. And I don't know what that looks like. This is all very new to, to a lot of us because of this, this story, but yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't have the answers. All I know is that going forward, I think this is uh, something that Canadians will own 
Um, and it should be discussed and it should never mm-hmm. be forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. I find like it's, uh, man, there's been so much fucking brutal news lately. It's, uh, I don't, um, like I find myself, I like fucking crying every morning reading the fucking newspaper, right? It's just like, it's, it's just been, it's been hard, you know? Um, just to, just knowing how much pain there is out there, um, you know, we're, we're all relatively incredibly lucky, fortunate people, um, for just knowing how much pain and suffering there is, right? It's just, yeah, we, we talked a bit about, you know, in last week's episode, that journalist who was pulled off the plane and the people sitting by and just kind of allowing it to happen. And they don't know, they're just, you know, they, it's, it's a weird situation. And the fact that this, this government in Belarus is like, they want to put this guy in jail for, for having opinions and, and writing about them. And I said on that pod that humans make me sad, you know, and that's kind of like whatever, like a blanket statement. And it is true. Like it's like sort of left to our worst devices or when there's things we want, land, money, whatever that is. It's like humans are capable of terrible things, including Canadians, although we don't see ourselves that way. But that being said, I think for the most part, the humanity in many people is something that I try to take um, a sense of optimism uh, in going forward. So these conversations, uh, you know, BLM, you know, like those those protests and and sort of the death of, of George Floyd and the way that the world came together. And I don't think uh, in an insignificant way, I think in a way that was really meaningful, those things give me hope. And I think that with this story and our history of residential schools sort of being something that, like you said, Max, like we, we heard about them in school. We didn't think about them. We didn't contextualize how fucked up of a system that was, like how truly insane and brutal it is. And I just don't think at this point that will be the case going forward. And I think it's important to sort of teach that along with all the other shit we teach about how we built this country and all the things we take pride in. We need to, we need to learn about this stuff going forward and use our humanity and our kindness, the good part of, of humans um, to try and rectify and sort of just be better uh, to one another going forward. Yeah, that's a good point, Mike. You know, that you guys are, are dads and just like teaching, teaching your children like you know, the history of things. So the world makes a little bit more sense. So it's like when you see, uh, you know, a homeless person who's, who's clearly, you know, suffering from addiction issues, it's like, oh, well, there's a, there's probably a, a really good reason for that. Like, you know, I remember hearing a statistic that if you go to Vancouver's East side, East Hastings, where it's a community of homeless people, it's like 92% of women there were sexually abused as kids. And it's like, that's that. It's, it's like, you know, people's behaviors, um, as adults is shaped, you know, by their, their childhood and their upbringing. And, and so when you see somebody on the street struggling or, or anybody going through something, it's usually for, for a pretty good reason. And, um, and, and, and that just, and how, how do you teach that lesson to, to, um, to the children's so that they grow up with a real sense of empathy to to go, Oh, that's not just some crazy person who I need to avoid that. That's a person who's been through a lot and what are, institutional things we can do to help help support them yeah uh okay let's um well thanks for listening to that folks let's uh we were gonna hit naomi osaka maybe talk about bo burnham shall we continue yeah uh i mean yeah let's do naomi let's do naomi and then maybe we can talk about uh those uh wonderful toronto maple leafs that everybody's uh talking about Okay, so Naomi Osaka is one of the 
most famous uh, tennis players in the world. Uh, she's a major draw on the tournament tour. And about a week ago, she released a statement essentially saying, um, for mental health reasons, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, I'm not going to be doing press uh, during the tournament because it puts me in a bad place and I need to be in the best place I can to compete. And essentially, she basically said, I won't be talking to the press. So that alone is, is an interesting story and an interesting angle that we can talk about when it comes to sort of athletes uh, and sort of what is expected of them and, and that. But the story didn't stop there. So she's in the French Open this week. And because of this sort of um, decision to not speak to the press, uh, the tournament fined her, I think, 15K uh, and told her she needed to speak to the press. So instead of her either just taking the fine and continuing to play, she withdrew from the tournament. And she said, this isn't good for my mental health. I never meant for all this to happen. There are some cool journalists, but et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I'm sorry. You know, I didn't mean to be a distraction. So she withdrew. So now they, one of the biggest stars in the world in this sport isn't playing in the French Open because they decided to flex and, and, and find her for not speaking to the press. So first, let's start with the decision that she didn't want to speak, uh, do her press availabilities during this tournament. Where do you guys stand on sort of the athlete uh, taking the power back, being empowered and saying, you know, I'm here to play tennis or basketball or hockey and this press part of it, I'm not, I'm not feeling and I need to be best at my ultimate goal. What are you guys' thoughts on that first? Well, I think it's, part of the job you know to to talk to the press if that's part of the job and you get into that agreement you you should do it but like any job there should be something in place where if you are having a legitimate mental health issue it should transcend that and you should be given a a pass like if i couldn't go to work today uh, and i said i'm having a mental health problem my work would have no problem with that so it should it should be no different right yeah i think recognizing the ecosystem that you're a part of is, is really important that, um, that, that the press covering it does help, you know, get excitement for the match. It gets people to come to the games. It gets the television contracts. It's like, it is a part of a bigger thing. Um, but I, I did like the way she talked about, I, I, I find, you know, you're, you're seeing this conversation happen in the NBA with Kyrie Irving, where he's been very dismissive of the press and he hasn't been really talking to the press and he's been citing mental health sort of more vaguely uh, and I'd say more condescendingly. <laughs> uh, like, you're not quite on my level. I'm not going to talk to you. Whereas I found her statement uh, tonally to be really well done. Uh, I, I found it was just like, no offense. I really like, I like a lot of you guys. Uh, it's just been really hard for me, and I and I want to support the tour. I want to figure out a different way we can, we can do this. But for right now, I, I just don't want to talk to anybody at the, at the French Open. I get, I get like the thing that annoys me sometimes when people go, "Well, this sets a precedent. This sets a precedent. What happens when she doesn't do it? Then that means the next person will do it, and then no one's going to end up doing press." And I don't totally buy that. I, I think there is context in everything. And if it did get to that point where everybody stopped doing press, then we'd be like, okay, guys, we're going to have to have a big group meeting about this. But when it, when it comes to like special exceptions based on circumstances, uh, I think that's totally fine. As, as Shane said, it's like, let, let, let's have a, um, let's have a conversation about this. And the idea though, also that it's such a big deal. They could have quietly dealt with this. I feel like, I think, I know she posted it and she's got a big social media following, but there is a world where she just quietly is told that like, she's not doing press. She's going through a lot right now. We're going to readdress this when this tournament's over. But the most important thing is that she's playing the French Open. She's an amazing athlete. 
Um, we really like her. Let's let's keep it moving. There, there's something to be said for that, which did not happen. Seems like that world may exist going forward now. It's, it always takes something like this to blow up and mm. be called attention to for it, it to happen. Yeah, it's you know, I think you nailed it, Max, when you talk about this sort of ecosystem or the construct. Like, I think sometimes we look at it in like a very sort of like, like one way you go, well, her goal is to win a tennis tournament. So that's, that's, so she needs to be able to do whatever she can to make that happen. But it's actually, when you pull out, it's like, actually, no, the goal is for the French Open to make millions and millions of dollars. And then... Naomi Osaka, whoever wins the tournament, they get paid millions and millions of dollars. So this whole thing sort of exists. And a part of that is the press element. Um, and now some athletes would say, you know, uh, I can speak directly to my fans through Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. Is there a need for journalists? But the, the one interesting thing is like the tennis players, like other tennis players, it's like Naomi Osaka is very, she's famous, right? But there's like 25 other players in that tournament that need, that they depend on that ecosystem. They need the press to tell their stories. Uh, they, they want to sort of like be in a tournament where the, the, the purse and the prize is so much money. And I think all of that happens because of like years and years of sort of developing the system. Now, are there parts of it that are antiquated? Uh, can the press ask, you know what I mean? Questions that are inappropriate. Absolutely. Like that stuff's happening. And I think Naomi is 100% right to like call all that out. But to try and sort of like um, break the system, you know, the way that some of these athletes are right now, uh, is it's an interesting angle because the system obviously isn't just going to be like, okay, Naomi, you don't have to talk, but everyone else does. And I saw this on Twitter too, and this is sort of like a smaller angle, but like if the other, you know, tennis players have to build press into their schedules, Naomi could be using that time. To, it's like she's actually got a competitive advantage now if she's not doing mm. press. And the yeah, other I didn't play, think of that angle, yeah. All the other players on the tournament are, are doing press. It's, so it, it does change the dynamic a bit. And, um, yeah, I, I, Shane, I think you actually nailed it when you say going forward, I think there might be more like a leeway and like you can miss a session here or there if you're not feeling it, but you can't just outright say, I'm not talking for the entirety of the tournament, you know, unless they, they get rid of that element of it. But it mm -hmm. seems like that's an important part of the system. What if you have a nervous disorder and it's a real thing and just you're fine playing a game, but you're not comfortable talking to people? Yeah, I think, I think it's a great question. And so maybe it's like, yeah, I guess, I guess you just have to do it poorly. You just, yes and no answers. And it's like, I can only do this for five or 10 minutes and then that's it. And it just looks different than a super gregarious tennis star, you know, going up there and, and holding court. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they could do a thing where instead of finding people who don't show up, they pay people who do. <laughs> and it's just, no, seriously, but it's just like, okay, it's, this is in your contract. If you show up to th these recommended press things you'll get 15 grand then you look like you the thirsty, you just won't get uh, thirsty guy at the party <laughs> no no it's just in your contract it's just you don't are get there the free drinks are there free drinks at the party? <laughs> max just if if you don't call it a fine calling it a fine is the the part that really rubs people the wrong way you like you're being fine for having a mental health issue if it's just like oh you didn't receive the money that you you get if you show up that's different mm -hmm. i um as an aside, I find um, the solo sports to be a lot more pressure filled than like a team sport when it comes to these press conferences. Like you've seen athletes do press conference together, right? Like when like LeBron would do it That's with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh is yeah. fun. Yeah. And also the pressure, it just isn't on you in the same way. I, I feel like being an individual athlete, whether it's tennis or golf or something in the Olympics, just be like so brutal. And I wonder if there's just a way to, because everything is on you. Like, you know, the Leafs lost last night. You're like, oh, there's like, you know, nine guys you could maybe put the blame on. But if you lose or play badly in tennis, it's just like, I just think the nerves are crazy. 
And I wonder if there's a way to like do the press conferences like an hour after or, or something like give you just like put the, the schedule, make their schedule and the routine a little bit different. Um, or yeah, because I think you can be a little bit more accommodating to these like solo sport athletes. Um, I really like the way she typed her thing out. It was it, it, like just in like the notes in her the iPhone? notes. Yeah, 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 yeah you could I tell like it wasn't like a highly like, you know, we're getting our PR team in it. Like she clearly wrote it and it actually really made me like her a lot. I know I touched on this earlier. Absolutely. Um, so here I am in Paris. I was already feeling vulnerable and anxious. So I thought it was better to exercise self-care and skip the press conferences. I announced it preemptively because I do feel like the rules are quite outdated in sports and I want to highlight that. I wrote privately to the tournament apologizing and saying that I would be more than happy to speak with them after the tournament as the slams are intense. I'm going to take some time away from the court, but when the time is right, I really want to work with the tour to discuss ways we can make things better for players, press, and fans. Anyway, hope you're all doing well, staying safe. Love you guys. I'll see you when I see like, <laughs> I was like, this is one of the most likable athletes I can think of. I love that she pulled out too, because mm-hmm. I, I just, just, I think in general, I lean on this whenever these set of disputes come up, whether there's a lockout or some collective bargaining agreement thing, I, I always tend to lean on the side of the athlete because I think they're the irreplaceable um, element of any uh, um, equation. I think executives, team owners, old rich guys, like there's a billion rich guys in the world, but there's only one LeBron James. And so I always lean more on like reward the talent. They're the unique element. So, but, but while understanding the construct and why these leagues exist, these leagues don't exist for the competition. They exist to generate millions and billions of dollars. That's, that's their sole reason for existing the whole ecosystem. Um, but when somebody sort of tries to break the system or be a disruptor, I'm always, I get like, I, you know, I sit up and I grab my popcorn and I'm like, what's the next step? So when they fine her to sort of try and flex the authority that they're able to, 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 to exercise with the, with the fine. It's like, okay, what's her move now? Because it's either like, you know what? I will do the press. I want to compete in this tournament. Or it's, I'm going to, I'm the biggest star in this tournament. I'm going to, I'm gone. Like I'm out. Like I'm taking that element away, which I do think puts pressure then on the institution to change how they go about things. Whereas if they'd found a compromise, the French Open would have got what they wanted, which is her in tournament play. And she wouldn't have. And so like, she maybe left a big prize on the table uh, and she, and she, and she sort of like exercised her power. So I love that she did it. I'm also very interested to see what happens going forward with uh, with tennis and sort of the, the relationship between the press and players. Do you think that she actually just organically typed it out in her her notes and laid it out that way, or do you think there's a manager Ash pulling the strings behind the curtain? <laughs> like, here's what we're gonna do: we're gonna type it up, send it to the team, kick it back to you. You're gonna act like you just top of the dome <laughs> in your notes. I, I buy it. I believe it. I'm with Max. Really? I, I picture her in her hotel room actually writing it out. Just her generation too. Like, But if we think about Max, it feels like a very Max-like thing where he would be like, <laughs> okay, like, I don't know, send it through, maybe think about it, put it in the notes app, screen grab it. Like, you know, we're, we, we kind of get a look at how this stuff actually works. Mm, so even with you being you, Max, you think you can get fooled by this stuff. Yeah, that's true. But I'm a sucker, so I, I get fooled easily. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Maybe you're right. Right. But um, yeah, yeah. It's just th- this is the stuff I think about. The th- the stuff that feels the least contrived often is the most. Okay, this is a good segue. We should talk about Bo Burnham. I don't want to talk about the Leafs. Let's wrap this up with. Uh, Did you watch it? I watched. Um, I want to say half of it, and I because uh, because it's all I had time because we talked about Wait this morning. Wait a second. And then... We'll talk. We'll talk about Bo, which I haven't seen. Why don't you want to talk about the Leafs? Oh, I'm just, that's bumming me out too. Well, okay. Yeah. Let's talk about the Leafs. Let's, let's talk about the Leafs. Let's do it quick. Just because it yeah. is kind of, his, 
Okay, so so uh, for anyone that, that doesn't follow hockey, the Leafs were uh, they just lost their first round series. They have not won uh, a, a playoff series in seventeen years, um, and they went up three uh, one. So everyone was like, Leafs fans were like, "Hey, we're, we're doing this. They're playing the Montreal Canadiens. They lose the next uh, three games uh, and lose the series four three. It like it it almost happened in a way that was just like like I guess I was I was thinking a lot about this. Like, are the Leafs like are they now like? like like a stinky franchise like in the way that the the Boston Red Sox were and like the Cleveland Browns are like is this the is this the deal going forward like are they like are they cursed Oh what are you laughing about <laughs> I'm just I'm only looking at Max because I feel like uh I can't say anything <laughs> <laughs> No, okay, well, we can, you, come on, just because you're, you're, listen, no, I, no, Dan Hamilton, no, I Dan talk, no, Hamilton I do is one of all of our best friends. And <laughs> so yeah, one, one of our best friends wor- yeah. works in the analytics team, and obviously I'm pals with Kyle Deuce, the general manager of the team. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and, and and we should say that sh- uh, his wife, Shannon, is a dear old friend of Shane, they, their childhood pal. So there's a lot of connections that leaves. I know a few of the guys on the team as well. I know a lot of guys within the organization, went on the mentors trip uh, last year. Uh, the first thing is, is that like hockey is just such an agonizing sport. It is unlike, if, I don't know soccer that well, but it feels unlike any other sport, baseball, football, especially basketball, when it comes to like the outcome and the randomness of it all. Uh, there's a funny quote that they, uh, that hockey shouldn't be called hockey. It should be called goalie because basically it's, <laughs> it's, it's like the outcome of the game just really is, is the goalie. Like if the goal, if there is a goalie standing on his head, that is that is the difference. And in the way the Leafs lost game six in overtime, it was just like, it, w- it was a deflection. And I know that's part of the game. Like creating deflections is, is literally how you score. But when you see how uh, how these goals happened, you're just like, oh my God, like there's nothing you could have done to stop that. It was just like, it, it hit off an errant stick and that was the difference in the game. Um, that's number one. And that, that was sort of like the, the fate of the Maple Leafs in this series, it seemed. Um, when it, to your question about is it a stinky franchise? It's like you know I've I just know how hard <laughs> Shane, Shane just made the funniest. Face. No, no, I know how hard Kyle works. Number one, and and um, what he's done to change the culture. So yeah, they haven't won in 17 years. Kyle took over the job. This is his third postseason loss. You'd say under his tutelage um, with the Leafs. He took over in the first season. He took over halfway through, so it wasn't quite his roster. And it's somebody else's team. And someone else's team. Number two, the second year was last year in the bubble. It was a five-game series against the Columbus Blue Jackets. It was like weird, weird experience. And this was just like a bad collapse. And so it 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 just bums me out that the um, that he is he has to shoulder the burden of seventeen years when really it's like one and a half years, kind of. And people in the city obviously have no patience. They want to see a winner. And I think by every other metric, he's actually built a really strong roster. I think he got some like veteran grit this year on the team that was maybe missing last year. Um, And I think the way the organization is thought of around the league and the players he's been able to attract um, you know, he he he's the guy who went out and signed John Tavares, and it's been a very long time since the Jays, since the Maple Leafs got like a preeminent in his prime. It superstar. should be said too that he's the captain. He's like for basketball fans, he's like the equivalent of Kyle Lowry mm-hmm. on the Leafs, and he got his bell rung. And I'm using hockey term now. Uh, he 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 got knocked out in Game One, had a concussion. He didn't play the rest of the series. They lost like their best player, arguably. Well, uh, yeah, I and guess- then. 
Austin's the, the best leader. player. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. He, he probably Dan, Dan would say that you know he's their, probably the second best player, and also Jake Muzzin is probably their top defenseman, and he was out in games uh, seven as well. So anyway, he's just had some like bad luck, and it's just agonizing to think that like. Oh God! They have to go through this all over. Like they can't just be like, okay, next week let's go fucking. Ask. It's like no, they have to kind of wait through the whole off season. They have to play eighty-two games and then uh, see what happens next year in the playoffs. The other thing, which is fucking weird about hockey, is that the lower seed often wins. Mike, in the NBA, you don't see a seven or eight seed or a six seed ever make it even to the conference final. Never, 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 never. The eight seed regularly gets deep and or wins the Stanley Cup. Hot goalie. They get a hot goalie. Yeah, yeah. Think, think about uh, the St. Louis Blues. You know, they they won a couple years ago. They were the eight seed. They were like in last place in the league, it, like midway through the season, and then they won. Um, the Washington Capitals, famously under uh, you know with Ovechkin on the team, they were the top team in the league. They'd always finish like top of the conference. They'd always get bounced early. The year they ended up finally, finally, finally winning the Stanley Cup, they're like the sixth seed, and the roster on paper wasn't that good. So it's just like. I find hockey to be agonizing in that way. Did and, you read a hockey book before this podcast? <laughs> I, I had no idea you knew anything about the sport. <laughs> no, I mean, you I've just had all this in your mind this whole time. Yeah. Like you knew. Oh, yeah, all yeah. That yeah, I've been following pretty oh. closely now. I, I do. You know, I'm, I'm in a, a puck boys. Uh, textbook text group. <laughs> oh my it's, goodness! It's called the New Puck Boys. It's your brother Mike, uh, yeah, Dan, Mike. and yeah. our buddy Al Al Jerkovich, uh, and we just send hockey links around. So I'm kind of informed now. It's interesting what you say about hockey because I've thought this a lot about the idea of value of stars and even like how the like how you pay one. I've thought about this like so. For instance, in basketball, if LeBron James is your best player, he's going to play. He, if he had to, he could play the whole game. He could play all 48 minutes, you know, but he's probably going to play about 45 minutes. He'll sit three minutes of game time um, in an important game. In hockey, your best player, let's say Austin Matthews, he can only ever play one third of the game because everything's in shifts. He can't be out there the whole time. In baseball, if you spend a bajillion dollars on some slugger, he only hits four times in the game, four times in a whole game. So for me, the reason that I think basketball outcomes are a little bit more... Um, I guess, uh, uh, predictable as far as seeding goes, it's because it's pretty simple. You have the best player, you're probably going to win because the best player can play the whole time. In hockey, there's so many variables. You, you only get your guy on the ice for one third of a whole game. So I, I do find that element of it interesting. Uh, and then I'm like, are you allowed to play like a double shift? Like if they're like, come off, you're like, no, no, I'm staying. You could totally. But I think these guys get so gassed so quick. I don't know, Max, you're the hockey expert on the podcast. Uh, like how, how long could a guy play a shift before <laughs> no, he gets gassed? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I think the shifts are about one minute long. Typically, um, a defenseman plays the most on a team. Uh, the game is 60 minutes. They typically play maybe 28 minutes on the high end of things. The Austin Matthews, the forwards, they might play 23, 24 minutes uh, of 60. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the way they're conditioned. It's just to like, you go really hard for 60 seconds and then you get the hell off the ice. Another crazy stat that just happened. So another long suffering franchise recently is the Edmonton Oilers and they lost four, nothing to the Winnipeg Jets, even though they were the, the heavy favorite. Um, they lost game four, um, in triple overtime, the game that ended booting them out of the playoffs, triple overtime. And in the regular season, uh, do you, do you know how the regular season overtime works guys? Four on four, four on four. It's I think it's it's three on three, and oh. it's a five minute um, overtime, and then it goes to right to a shootout. Basically, they want to get an outcome quick, and when there's only three guys on either t- team, stuff happens really quickly. Like two on ones happen 
pretty well immediately and there's and and like the game is usually decided in in the playoffs it's straight 20 minute periods five on five hockey and so yeah so 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 the rules change come the playoffs darnell nurse hamilton boy uh in our buddy yeah in a losing effort uh he played 63 minutes so think about that he played more (laughs) in a regulation game and so normally a defenseman plays 28 minutes. He played 63 minutes uh, in a triple overtime loss, which is particularly brutal. But that's wow. hockey. Yeah, that's hockey. Uh, mm-hmm. I actually had the game on in my backyard yesterday and had some of our friends over. And my interest solely lies with one. I just I think it's fun when the Leafs win because so many people Stuff I to know. Do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so many people I know derive joy from it. I, I have no feelings either way. Although this year I did feel pretty connected to it because our buddy Dan, like I was texting with Dan a lot and I really wanted them to go to this first round for Dan. Uh, but it's an interesting exercise watching in the backyard with a bunch of basketball guys. Uh, and then our good friend, Jay Kelly, who is a hockey guy. And we had to keep asking Jay hockey questions. Like <laughs> I was like, okay, so they're down by two. Are they going to pull the goalie? Like at the three minute mark, Jay's like, yep. Three minutes. And he was, you know, walking us through it. But like Sean Dawson was watching the Philadelphia 76ers game on his phone. Uh, people were just having random conversations but it's just so different than a basketball experience and you can still get into it and it's tense. Uh, but what's a beautiful about it. And this probably isn't, you know, no leaf fan listening is going to enjoy this because they're like, fuck you. I wish I could not feel anything. Like the minute the game was over, I was like, Oh, that was a bummer shot Dan a text. I'm like, Hey, sorry, better luck next year. And then I didn't think about it again. And it is such a different experience than when you care, like the Raptors where I'm like, I lose two days to sadness. I'm like, which I know my leaf friends are going through right now, but it was such a, it was kind of a nice burdenless, uh, hang and exercise to watch the Leafs in game seven. Did you watch it? Cheney? No, one, I was wondering if Dan was touched by that heartfelt text you sent him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> better luck next year. <laughs> Isn't like his job it, it, on was, the line. I paraphrased. I paraphrased. I was yeah, far yeah, yeah. more, far more uh, sympathetic uh, to him, but yes. No, I know. I uh, did not watch the game, but the last time I did watch a game was seven years ago. And I can't believe it's been this long. And it was a, a playoff game. That is. And they were up in the seventh game, I think six to two in the third period. <laughs> and I was, I was, and we had a, a friend at work, Simon Jane, yeah. who was a big, he was the only diehard Leafs fan I knew. And he was getting me excited for how the city was going to be a buzz <laughs> if we made it past the first round. And I see that at six to two, I'm like, yes, I can't wait to get into work and see Simon. So I, I come into work. I'm like, give him a little shoulder massage. And I'm like, Hey, they did it. And he's like, what are you talking about? He, he just told me how they lost and I had no idea. But they, they blew a four-goal lead in the third. So, yeah, this this Leafs team has terrible luck with uh, Game 7. Uh, so, Max, great. this is the ultimate mm-hmm. question. You understand sports history, the way that mm-hmm. a team is perceived, how that can mess with the psyche of the players on the team. Have the Leafs entered stinky Cleveland Browns, old Boston Red Sox territory? Yeah, oh, God, I mean... And who's to blame? Um, well, no, I know. I don't think so. Um, and everything's shitty until it's not. And I think if you ask, here's the thing. It's so easy to get superstitious when it comes to this stuff. We're like, we are the cursed franchise. Honestly, the last two days leading into the game last night, I was just thinking about what I could do differently to affect the outcome. I was like, do I text Dubas? Do I not text Dubas? Okay, I'm going to try texting him because the last time there was a big game, I didn't text him. They lost. So I'm going to text him this time. Okay, what did we have for dinner on game three when they won? Okay, let's make sure we cook the same thing. Okay, we've been having some friends over to watch in the backyard. Okay, who wasn't here on the two losses that was here? Oh, fuck, Kevin Malouche. You were doing all this? I was doing all this shit. Wow. I was like, oh, Kevin. I was like, <laughs> I was like Kev- Kevin Malouche. 
<laughs> you should have texted Max after that loss. Like, yeah, me? honestly. Yeah, sorry, buddy. <laughs> you know, I think um, people in sports, people that are like kind of um, students of the game, students of the process, uh, that aren't superstitious idiots like me, because uh, would go, no, like I've, you can only control what you can control. All you can do is best prepare your team or your organization to do whatever they can. It's one day at a time. It's not about the result. It's about the process. Don't get too hung up on the wins and losses. Just ask yourself, am I doing everything I can to do it right? And, you know, evaluate, you know, after the end of each day and see, okay, what can I do better tomorrow? And that is the headspace I think to like executives have to be in. Whereas everybody, every other like dumb superstitious sports fan like ourselves go like, oh fuck, I can't do it. Like this is like this existential dread. But you have to have this sort of like mind over matter, um, if, you know, in, within you to to make sure that uh, you're not getting carried away with with all like the the history that doesn't even involve you, right? Like the the thing that we're talking about has nothing to do with really with Mitch Marner. Or Austin Matthews or Kyle Dubas, like we're we're talking about things that like disappointments that happened in 1983 or something, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. So, and Mitch Marner wasn't born yet. I'll wrap this by saying, uh, as far as the Leafs go, I know what it was like to be uh, a franchise that people laughed at as a Raptors fan, and you're a loser uh, with agonizing losses until you're not, and when you're not, it's the greatest thing in the world, and you basically get a hundred more years of freedom and happiness with your team, no matter how they do, and it erases everything that came before it. All the Lebronto stuff, all that shit, it doesn't matter when you get to the pinnacle, so I believe in this Leafs team. I believe in Kyle Dubas. I believe in Dan Hamilton, and I think next year they're going to come back strong, yes. and once they win it, all this shit will just be forgotten. It's true. They're a little stinky right now, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end. Yeah. Uh, no, I like that button. All right. Uh, let's move on to Bo Burnham. Shane, you're, you're all abuzz. You texted me late last night saying, watch this thing. But I was, I was in leaf mode. And then, uh, and then I saw you put it on your Instagram. You haven't been this hype about a comedy special in a long time. It's true. I think it's probably the best thing i've watched in the pandemic now max you just watched a bit of it what do you think mm -hmm. um well I'll, I, my expectations were set differently if i just thrown it on i i don't know bo burnham, bo burnham that well i think i think he's me either i'd never even heard do you know him. how i know who he is i only know him one way and it's because uh adam mckay is working on a lakers show for hbo and they announced all the casting and everybody on the internet was like, whoa, Bo Burnham's playing Larry Bird. That's crazy. Bo Burnham's playing Larry Bird in this, this miniseries. So I looked up Bo Burnham. I was like, oh, this guy's like a stand-up. No, like I guess he's like an alt stand-up comic that like is kind of niche right now, but it seems like this special is going to explode him because it's everywhere right now. Well, I, he uh, wrote and directed Eighth Grade, I think. Did you guys see yeah. that movie? And, and that movie was, No, I, but I heard it's amazing. I really like that movie a lot. He was also in the Carrie Mulligan movie. He plays... Promising um, Young Woman. Yeah. yeah. He's like the love interest. Yeah. yeah so so I, I definitely respected him, but I can't say I like, know stuff that well. Um, but Shane, when you recommend something, uh, I take it very seriously. Um, so I think if, if you say like you have to watch something, like okay. I'll, I'll always, always, always watch it. And I have so far watched about 40 minutes, 30 minutes maybe of it so far. And I really like it so far. And you say it only gets better. So I am thoroughly impressed, uh, but I could only get through 30 minutes so far. Yeah, I really like the first 10 minutes. And then from the, I guess, 11-minute moment to the 40-minute moment, I'm like, okay. And then the last bit gets really good. Mm -hmm. It's just, his songs were good, too. Yep. He's good at music, mm -hmm. playing uh, the keyboard. Uh, I found a, a lot of his songs to be like hit songs, like outside of comedy. They would 
mm-hmm. potentially be a hit. But you know, I don't want to. I don't like spoiling things mm-hmm. for Mike too, who hadn't seen it. <laughs> uh, and it's hard for me to describe things sometimes. So I've I've brought in a guest. Whoa! To describe it, <laughs> like a perf- a person who's actually good with words. Is, it, have, is it Bo Burnham? Did- <laughs> Do does this count with... as does this count as Shane's surprise? Are we do we oh, absolutely yeah. slip into Shane's surprise? Yeah. I oh, thought it was. Oh, it was. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was. Well, the I'm whole surprised. Time. Who are you bringing on? I'm bringing Jill. Okay, oh, smart, good. Right. That's awesome. So she's the one who recommended this to me, and I told her, you know, she can't say too much. She can't spoil it, but she's going to describe the genius that is Bo Burnham, and hopefully, it'll entice people to watch it better than I can. Welcome to the podcast. You're you're. you're your image isn't on. I don't know if you want to put your image yeah, you on. You got to turn oh, the video no. on, Jill. I don't know how to do this. <laughs> yeah, you do. What are you talking about? You've used Zoom before. Are you joking? Oh. oh. Well, you're, you're sideways, Jill. <laughs> what? You're sideways. Your image you're is sideways. sideways. We can keep it sideways. Hey, there we there go. There we go. All right. Now you're upright. Hold on. Are you? It, it sounds fine. This is how I do every podcast. Cool. I sound good? Yeah, you sound great. You sound good. Thank you. <laughs> Now, we're just obviously, we're talking about Bo uh, Burnham special. Yeah. Now, what makes it such a good special, do you think? Mm, Well, I think that one of the things that I think is so cool about Bo Burnham is he's so funny, right? But he's also super short. And when you think of like a funny guy, you're thinking of like a short fella, like maybe like Danny DeVito, but he's tall like a Mm -hmm. basketball player. (laughs) Yes. So, he's actually going to be playing Larry Bird. Right? So you mean so he's tall. You said he's short at the top. You said he's short, yes. But she you meant, meant to say tall. he's tall. You, you, you meant to yeah. say he's tall. Okay, okay. Sorry. Right. I was like, it's a bit right <laughs> actually, now? Like, <laughs> First of all, I got to say, so for our listeners, it, we just we talked about Jill in a previous podcast. She's doing a ton of TikTok stuff uh, with this family tree. She has her own TikTok, all of that stuff. So just to give some helpful context. Helpful with uh, Arkells as well. Arkells. I, I shoot her ideas and she's helpful. Thank you very much, this, Jill. This is... The, yeah, this is the. Do you like Do you like Jill or Jillian? Because because you think so. I don't Jillian. really care. Jillian. I'll never introduce okay. myself as Jill, but you can call me Jill. It's it's fine. <laughs> All right. So you are the Jill that we talked about in previous episodes. Welcome, welcome to the podcast. Get back to Bo Burnham. Yeah. So as I was saying, I think it's really cool that it's like honestly, it's kind of brave. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That he's so tall, but he's funny like a man who's short. <laughs> oh, okay, that was the joke. Exactly. Okay, okay. <laughs> yes. No, I'm being serious. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, um, I get it. Yeah. Um. And <laughs> sorry. Uh, wh- who do you think this special is for? Like targeted to, and why would they enjoy it? Like, is it only for other tall people? No, it's for people. I f- okay. People. Just it's for people. Hmm. People. Mm. And. Uh, Sorry, Max. This is a bit. We were trying to do a bit, and it just fell apart. I was, <laughs> I was like, "Is this some sort of experimental <laughs> comedy thing happening?" It was. Jill and I talked about it. I'm like, "Okay, Mike is gonna smell that this is a bit right away, but Max is a little bit more gullible, so we can keep him going." But just instantly, you noticed it was a bit, and I can't do it. I get too embarrassed if everyone knows it's a bit to run a bit. But uh, what were the? Okay, let's anyway, walk through the bit. We'll, we'll the, do like a very Jill, meta. The, Jill, meta, the problem is yeah. right off the bat you screwed up you said short he's short and, and not tall i'm so, you, so, you, so nervous right now because yeah. i didn't know what <laughs> yeah. i was doing and i'm also such a bad liar i said right before i was like i don't think i'm gonna do very well at this because i'm a bad liar and i'm mm. not good at this and yeah the premise of the bit was supposed to be that i asked jill uh 
all these questions and she's so very short with it and she doesn't really give a lot of exposition or why he's he's good and we just had a couple of questions that we were going to ask and she was just going to say uh he's good for people to listen to who <laughs> like comedy and i think uh, people <laughs> in society would enjoy him and then we were just going to do that kind of bit so she'd but, be like the worst correspondent ever is that the idea like she, she's yeah and then i was going to be a bad question asker and i was going to be like but is he a cutie and then she was going to say yeah He's a cutie. And then I was like that. And that's when you, I'm like, this is when Max is going to break and go, what the fuck is going on? Or like, is this a bit? And then we're going to have a laugh and then exit. But yeah. I messed it up in a whole other way. Mm -hmm. That yeah. wasn't. It didn't work. And it's my fault. And I'll own yes. that. <laughs> yes. Hey, well, you know what? While we have you there, Jillian, have you actually watched it yet, by the way? Yeah, I did. Okay, good. Okay, that's cool. Um, can we talk She's about it? She's the one who told me to watch it. Oh, yeah. okay, good. Um, sure. Yeah, I really... Uh, the thing that immediately struck me about the special is that I feel like a lot of people in the arts, whether it's comedians or musicians or whatever, are having a, have had a really hard time figuring out how to interact with the world while we're inside the whole time because so much of being a musician or being a stand-up comedian is like interacting with audiences. And you you want to do things that are sort of like appropriate for the moment, like because you're kind of like speaking to an audience, you know, that's experiencing life in real time. He is, I've, I haven't seen many people that have been able to do it in, in a way that's actually inventive, that's actually cool, that's actually watchable, that's anything more than just like a TikTok, really, truly at this point. So the fact that he's like mm -hmm. executed this like very like time and place like uh, special is really impressive because I really haven't seen that many other artists that have been able to do that. Yeah, it's like it's funny, it's cool, it's heartbreaking in a way. Like how how he goes through it and like his isolation and his his loneliness and he has a part where he just talks about how five years ago he took time off of stand up because he was having like panic attacks on stage and then he decided to begin again doing stand up in front of live audiences in January and then the pandemic struck. And then just this project is kind of all he has. And he shows him basically breaking down at some points. But you wonder, is that art? Is that real? Is that a fly on the wall video we're watching? Or is that just he's just doing it as like a, a piece of acting? So you're thinking about all these things the whole time. What's your uh, what do you suspect is going on there? I think he's a good actor and he's just trying to recreate moments that everyone has had during the pandemic. And then just by the end of it, it's like this Truman show type moment it's just very cool it's yeah you feel everything i think when you go through it beyond just oh this is funny or this is great and doing this bit here <laughs> that we try to do you see how hard comedy is <laughs> and it's 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 just such an exercise in failure and yeah you really screwed up the beginning of this bit joe i know i'm gonna think about yeah. this for weeks. <laughs> no, i'm kidding i'm kidding <laughs> Um, and actually Shane, because you recommended to me, mm -hmm. I was, I was thinking about you. Does this inspire you it, to do more stuff? Cause I know, I know you were working on mm -hmm. some, uh, comedy, uh, like a, a new show idea and you, and you're obviously doing a lot of material with this family tree, but like, I always, I think so highly of your talent, Shane, and it just actually almost pisses me off that you're not doing more. Cause I'm like, cause sometimes I see people this that is are, the, this is the Goodwill hunting speech. 
Like, it kind of is, honestly. If I keep I, showing up to your door every day, so yeah, you want, yeah, one day you want to show yeah. up to Shane's door and he won't be there when you go to pick yeah, him up. That's exactly it. No, honestly, yeah. because because it does piss me off when I see other people who I don't think are nearly as talented as you getting opportunities and doing shit. And I'm so sitting I, right here. <laughs> no, no, the same goes for you, though, Mike, too. Uh, um, and, and the maple leaves. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of a stink. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, Shane, does this inspire you to be like, ah, oh, fuck, I, I just want to work more. Oh, so much. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. That's what I like to hear. As much as it inspired me, it made me feel like I'm not creative at all. This is the best shit like I've seen in the longest time. And what's the point? You're never going to be as good as this guy. He's he's great at music. He's great at editing. He's a great director. He's a great actor. He's a great comedian. And he directed eighth grade and he's going to play Larry Bird in a movie coming up. It's like, <laughs> what can't he do? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was definitely encouraging and discouraging. Yeah, I get like that too when it comes to certain musicians where I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, this guy's doing everything. So that does depress me, but then I go one step below to a bunch of people who I think I'm better than it, then, yeah. but are still doing lots of stuff. And I'm like, oh, but I'm better than that guy. So I might not be as good as that guy, but I'm better than the rest of these fools. Yeah, and you're still like selling out stadiums and uh, yeah. stuff. Like I'm just at home alone like <laughs> doing nothing. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know. Jillian, do you have somebody that you compare yourself to or that you see as like a benchmark for success? Oh my God. I don't know. I don't, I like for a while I really wanted to do internet stuff, but then I learned that I don't like being cyber bullied and that's kind of something mm. you have to get used to. So I think that with the pandemic, since like live comedy has been taken away, I kind of don't know where I fit <laughs> like anymore or what exactly I want to do I really like Taika Waititi's movies like the way he writes and mm. I loved eighth grade but I don't know I try not to compare myself to other people because that's bad for your brain <laughs> mm-hmm. I was thinking like as much as Max has me on this high pedestal I was thinking that about you Jill actually while <laughs> watching Bo that you could <laughs> do something like a, a one woman show similar to this. And you're such a great dancer. I was thinking you could actually do like a musical version of this without playing, instead of playing the keyboards, it's just like a dance musical thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyway, I feel like that, that would idea. ruin my life. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? I feel mm-hmm. like if I, oh, yeah. I would like attempt to do something really cool. And then in my head, it would be the best thing anyone's ever made. And then as soon as it got, um, like if I hate when people are able to perceive me, you know, I don't like being perceived. <laughs> so I feel mm. like if someone were to perceive me doing that, it would ruin my the rest of my life. I want to exist quietly behind the scenes forever. Last question. Um, with you guys are both uh, very heavily involved in TikTok things. I find TikTok really fucks with my brain in a negative way because I'll see um, a TikTok that's going off or somebody who's doing really well on TikTok and I compare myself to them. Do you guys uh, give yourself like TikTok, um, like only certain hours, the amount of hours in the day that you'll spend thinking about it? Or like, how do you guys police yourself? Because I've had to work on that. Mm. Well, we've been doing so well that it's hard. <laughs> like every video we've done is a hit. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's the, <laughs> it's the one good thing in my life right now. Well, <laughs> every almost every video we post gets over a hundred thousand views. Wow. So it's it's just like like I I'm just in awe. I'm like we're we're hit makers. We have almost fifty thousand followers. I'm like geez, like I feel invincible. And I guess when a video doesn't do well, then I start mm-hmm. feeling bad. Mm. The odd one, you know. 
I, I don't know how to get out of this uh, segment, Max. I'm, I'm sorry. This is like... <laughs> well, it's going to end the way it started, which is awkward as hell and uh, uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there I'm we go. so Thank sorry you, that I did that. No, that's yeah. right. The idea was great, but then I ruined probably the whole podcast now. You're more of a behind-the-scenes writer than like an on-camera like talent. That's what they also said about John Mulaney yeah. or something. So I'm kidding, but... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. I am. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>